You are listening to Pastor Dave Lusk of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Two Paths Lie Before You, recorded on July the 17th, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Dave as he preaches. So Mike's away for a little bit this summer. We just finished up our series on growing God's healthy church. We, we spent some time talking together about what it means to be a healthy and active and thriving and growing church and, and what our role is within that. And before we get into the next book that Mike is going to be preaching through, we wanted to take some time this summer to get different pastors up here. There are several staff pastors here at Harvest to teach you through our favorite psalms. Um, and so we wanted to really kick this series off right. We wanted to make sure that the man who was up here preaching this beginning sermon was a man of high moral fiber, was a man who could... <laughs> You're already laughing. I don't know why. <laughs> was, was a man who could bring the word with conviction, who could preach revival, who could stir the hearts of the people up to action. And since Mike was away and John Piper's busy elsewhere, we decided that the clear next choice was young Fred, but he was also busy. Um, And so was big Fred, Mike Harvey, Rodney, Scott, Kevin, and Matt. Um, So naturally, the next choice was to have Mike record the sermon ahead of time. So let's go ahead and roll that, and I'll... uh, um, I am excited to be up here. I don't normally get to do this as the youth pastor. Normally I get to work with people who are a a bit younger than you all. No judgment there. Um, But I'm very excited to kick off this series into the Psalms. I actually got to take a course on the Psalms in college. I went to Geneva College in in Beaver County, Pennsylvania. Um, and, And as part of that class, we actually memorized the first Psalm, uh, which I was really excited. It was the first Psalm and not Psalm 119. Um, in case you don't know, not familiar with your Bible humor, Psalm 119 is long. Um, but the first Psalm is one that is still near and dear to my heart. So that is where we're going to be today. Uh, if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Psalms, chapter 1, uh, it's about a third of the way through the Bible. If you have a print Bible, you can just right there. Uh, It will be on the screen behind me. If you have an electronic Bible, that's just as good. And if you have no Bible, we would love to give you one. We would love to give you the scripture. Please just talk to somebody here at the campus, and they'll connect you with someone who can give you a Bible. Um, The Psalms are one of the largest books of the Bibles, the Psalms themselves, which can be best understood as songs or poems are the prayers and praises of God's people, of God's original people, Israel. Uh, we, if you aren't familiar, the, the promise of God was originally given to the nation of Israel. God made them his people. He called them to himself. And through the nation of Israel, we get Jesus, who brings salvation to the world. And so those of us who aren't original Israelites, who aren't born into the Jewish heritage, which is probably most of you, um, we've been grafted in. We've been made a part of the promise to Israel. And so these are the prayers and praises of God's people, which means that as Christians, we can now join with them in praising our God. 
What an amazing thing that is to think about, that throughout the ages, God has been praised. That throughout time, God's people have worshipped him, and we can now join in that same praise. Uh, When we read the Psalms, we can join in praising the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who made the nation of Israel, the same God who sent his son to die in our place on the cross. Um, And it's a reminder to me, and hopefully to you, that one of the oldest and most beautiful and, and most traditional ways, let's say, to worship God corporately is through singing. Um, it's through singing praise. Now, the instruments may change, and the songs may seem a little bit different, and the, the setting may have changed a little bit, but our God never changes. Amen? All right. And those of you who are like, well, I just don't like singing. I don't need to sing to worship my God. Probably true. Right? I don't need a bed to sleep, but it certainly helps. Um, So there are many ways that we can worship our God, and coming together to sing is is one of them. Uh, And so I encourage you to participate, enjoy, worship your God freely in this time. Um, It's good that we gather together to sing. And so with that in mind, let's take a look together at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." I love this first psalm because it sets for us our understanding of the rest of the book. This psalm frames for us the the way we're to interpret and understand everything else we read after this. It it sets up our understanding of what it means to worship God, what it looks like for someone to truly worship God, that anyone who would desire to worship God must have a love of him and a love of his law, his word, uh, his instruction what they might call the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, what we would understand today as his word, his, his entire word. And so anyone who would come, who would desire to worship God, must love God and his word. So if you want to worship God, you must love his word. If you want to worship God, you must love his word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law or the word of the Lord. And on his word he meditates day and night. This generic man that we're being shown is an example. He's a stand-in for anyone who would desire to worship God. And he is blessed. Why? Not because of how great he is. There are no deeds of this man listed other than his love for God and for God's word, simply because he has a desire to know God and to delight in his word. You know, um, I've been asked the question before. Uh, those of you who don't know, we actually do live question and answers during youth group time, we let people text in the questions and I try to answer them live. And one of the questions I've, I've been asked and I get asked, and, and not even just in youth group, but elsewhere is, 
can you be a Christian, can you be a follower of Jesus, can you be a believer without reading the Bible? Can you be a Christian without reading the Bible? Can you follow God, can you follow Jesus without reading his word, without reading the Bible? Um, And here's the thing. No. Uh, It's a pretty simple answer. But here, yeah, <laughs> here's the problem with the question. It's, it's flawed logic. The logic behind the question is somehow flawed. Um, see, you can't truly enjoy God. You can't truly follow him. You can't truly know him. You can't truly delight in him apart from his word because his word is an outpouring of himself. His word is an outpouring of himself. Hebrews tells us that the word is living and active, Right? So this isn't like your refrigerator manual, although that's how many of us would treat it. Right? You don't want to throw the refrigerator manual away because what if something goes wrong? So what do you do? You set it aside. And so many of us treat the scripture just like that. We set it aside and we keep it there in case something goes wrong, then we'll know how to fix it. And so we go grab it and read it and then we put it away again until we need it. See, the word of God, the truth of scripture reveals to us the character of God, the person of God. It is our way to know him, to connect with him. And so trying to enjoy him, trying to follow him, trying to know him, trying to delight in him without reading his word is like trying to enjoy bacon without actually eating it. Um, Now, I know there are some of you, probably not in our congregations, but there are some in this world I've heard who don't like bacon. (laughs) Makes my skin crawl to think about. Um, And there are some who would say, you know, I can enjoy the smell of bacon. So can I. But can you truly enjoy bacon without eating it? I put forth you cannot, and I'm an expert in this field. Um, (laughs) You cannot truly enjoy the crispy, salty deliciousness that is bacon without actually eating it, not really enjoy it, right? Not enjoy it the way it is meant to be enjoyed. It's the same way with his word. You cannot truly worship and enjoy and follow and delight in God apart from his word. The two are inseparable. You cannot separate God from his word. But there are many people who seek to do just this, they seek to somehow separate God from his word, that, that you can follow God somehow and not need his word, that his word is outdated, that it doesn't speak to today, that it's not important, that what's important is your experience with God, the way you feel. They would seek to twist and to change and erase God's word. Why? Why would we do this? Because our desire is not to delight in God. It's that simple. Anyone who would seek to change and twist and contort and remove God's word, their desire is not truly to delight in God. It all comes back to that original sin in the garden. When we look at Adam and Eve, when they were made and they were created in the image of God and they enjoyed him, and then what were they tempted with? It wasn't just the woman's fault. They were both there. You can be like God. And so they ate. And... They knew right from wrong. They wanted to decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong, and sin entered the world. See, that was the original desire that they had, to know right and wrong, to be able to decide for themselves, to be able to no longer need God, to not have to rely on him, 
to tell us what is right and wrong. I don't need a moral authority to tell me what is right and wrong. Does this sound familiar to anyone? It's the same sin on through the ages to no longer need God. That's why we reject his word. We can determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. We can decide on our own. I want to decide for myself what is right. I want to be the one in charge. God would never say that. God would never deny me that. God made me this way. Clearly, God wants me to do this. Clearly, God wants me to be this way. If he didn't, why would he make me with this desire? It's who I am. My God is love. My fluffy marshmallow man in the sky would never want me to have bad things. The Jesus I know would never even squish a bug, let alone tell somebody to take up their cross and follow him. The Jesus I know would never say, oh, sell everything you have and give to the poor. The Jesus I know would never want me to be sad, always wants me to be happy, would want me to have everything that I want in this life. How can it be wrong if I feel it in my heart? Let your heart lead you. Follow your heart. Guess what? If your ultimate guide is your heart, if your benchmark for doing something or not doing it is because you feel it in your heart, then I'm going to tell you right now it's already wrong. Because your heart, as the ultimate guide, is only going to lead you into trouble. And here's how I know. Because of God's word. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? Because here's what I know. What dwells at the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl is sin. What dwells at the heart of every person in this room, in this county, in this world is sin. So why would I want to try to follow God apart from his word? Because then I don't have to face the reality of my own sinfulness. Then I don't have to face the truth that I'm broken, that I am desperately sick, that I'm twisted and wicked? Why would I seek to change God's word, to read clear passages of Scripture, and then say things like, well, it doesn't really mean that, right? Well, it doesn't really mean don't steal. It means like, you know, that it's okay if you really need to. Well, it doesn't really mean don't lie, because I like need to lie in this situation, otherwise I'm going to get in trouble, right? It doesn't really mean, insert whatever it is here, right? it doesn't really mean that I, when I go to work and slack off for four hours and play Pokemon Go that I'm stealing from my company. It doesn't really mean that uh, I have to care for and love my family as a priority. It doesn't really mean that, that I have to love my neighbor as myself. I don't even like my neighbor, Right? Why do we do that? Because then we can continue to do what it is we desire to do. Then we can continue to delight in ourselves and in our sin rather than to truly delight in God. I do this because my delight is not in him and my delight is not in his word. No, my delight, my desire is to walk in the way of the wicked, to stand with sinners, to sit with scoffers, and to be made to feel good about it. So I ignore, I cast off, I change the word to suit my own desires, to suit myself, or perhaps 
We aren't doing it for ourselves. Perhaps we're doing it for those around us we claim to care about. Perhaps we're doing it because we don't want to have those difficult conversations with someone that we love because we're afraid of what might happen. So instead we find ways to justify their actions. Well, they didn't really mean to do that. Well, they're really a nice person. We find ways to make it all right for them to continue living in sin. But here's the thing, helping yourself or others to feel good about their sin really doesn't do anything. It doesn't actually solve the problem because here is the problem. Ephesians 2.1 lays it out for us pretty well. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you were dead. You were dead. If you don't know Jesus, you are dead. Surprise. Right? That's the problem. That is the reality of where we are. That is where we stand in the world. That is who we are. You're dead. Sin is alive and well within you, and you are dead. So helping someone to feel better about their sin, helping someone to feel like, oh, it's okay. It's okay that, that you're sleeping around. It's okay that, that you're living with someone outside of marriage. It's okay that, that you're doing drugs. It's okay that you're stealing. It's okay that, no. Helping someone to feel better about their sin is just two dead people trying to help each other feel better about being dead. Um, which draws to mind a picture of two zombies in a counseling session for me. Um, little insight into the inner workings of my mind. Um, terrifying, I know. You should pray for my wife. <laughs> Every day, right? You're like, how do you even get there? Don't, you don't want to try to follow that path. That's scary and dark, um, right? Two zombies sitting there. Zombie sad? Zombie sad. Why zombie sad? Zombie dead. But that's what we're doing. Right? That sounds ridiculous, but that's what we're doing. When we try to make people feel better about the reality of their sin before a holy and righteous God, you're just trying to make somebody feel better about being dead. I don't know if you know this, you really can't comfort a dead person. They're dead. Right? Now, that may sound really insensitive, but the truth is, this is where we stand. Sin is alive and well, and we are dead. No amount of comfort, no amount of it's okay, buddy, is going to change that. Because here is the reality. There are only two paths that lie before us. Righteousness and wickedness. There are only two paths that lie before us. Righteousness and wickedness. That's it. Those are the only options. Two. I know. You're like, what? Two choices. Really bad multiple choice tests. Right? There aren't varying degrees of righteousness. There is just righteousness. There aren't varying degrees of wickedness. There is just wickedness. There's only two paths and only two options. There's righteousness that leads us to God, that leads us to joy, that leads us to eternity with him, and there is wickedness that leads to destruction and despair and death. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
So either you're going to be like the tree, you're going to be connected to God, you're going to be rooted in him, you're going to be connected to this stream of life, you're going to be built up, you're either going to follow and delight and enjoy him and be nourished by him, or you're going to be like the chaff. You're going to be wicked and without God forever. Chaff, those of you who aren't farmers, like myself, is the husk, the outside of a grain. It's what's left after you get to the grain, the actual useful part, right? And so what farmers would do back then to separate the chaff, which is completely useless, it has no use whatsoever, can't be planted, can't really be eaten, has no sustenance to it, is they would break it up they would, and then they would toss it into the air. And the grain, which had substance, which had weight to it, which is actually useful, would fall to the ground, and the chaff would blow away in the wind because there's nothing to it. There's no substance there. And so you see, the truth is this. Because there are only two paths, you cannot be standing still. You are either moving closer to God on the path of righteousness or you're moving further away from him on the path of wickedness. See, that's, that's the way it works. There's not neutral. There's not, well, I'm just going to idle here and do the things I want to do and then follow God eventually. There's not, well, I'm kind of moving towards God, but I'm not ready to give him these things yet. You're either moving closer to God or you're moving farther away from him. That's the way it works. That's the reality of it. Anyone else who is trying to sell you something, right? I know this isn't a popular position to take today. I know the, that many people wouldn't say this. Um, I know there are many people who would like to believe that if you're a good enough person, that if you do nice things, that if you really never got into much trouble, that, that if you were generally considered a good guy by the people around you, if you believed what you believed sincerely enough, then surely God would count it. Surely God would list it in your favor that somehow God gives partial credit, like this is your fourth grade math class or something. Well, I got the answer wrong, but I showed all my work, so it's okay, right? It's not fourth grade. This isn't Mrs. Biega's room. This is real life. There is no partial credit. That's not how it works. And I understand the reality of what I'm saying. I understand the implications of this. I understand what this means and it burdens me. I am burdened by it because here's what it does. It reminds me that every single person I meet is on one of these two paths. They're either moving closer to God or they're moving further away from him. Every single person I meet, every single one of you in this room, every person you're going to meet in that lobby today, every person you're going to bump into at Walmart today, every person you're going to try to avoid talking to at Walmart today, is on one of these two paths. That person in the deli who just can't seem to move fast enough for you because, darn it, you need your turkey and cheese for this week, is on one of these two paths. That cashier who can't seem to scan the UPC code, even though you pointed it out to her like 16 times, is on one of these two paths. Every person we meet is a living, breathing person with a soul, with an eternal destiny. Let us not forget that those who don't believe in Jesus, so, like they still have an eternity waiting for them. It's just an eternity apart from God and hell. Every person you meet, every day of your life, 
is on one of these two paths, is journeying towards God or journeying away from him. I understand the reality of that, and it burdens me. When I see this, I'm reminded of friends and family who are not following Christ, who, though they would would be said of them, oh, they're, they're good people, they'd do anything for you. They're not planted by the stream. They're not delighting in the law of the Lord. They're standing with sinners and sitting with the wicked. They're walking with scoffers, right? I know my family. I know my friends who are not united with with Christ, who are not righteous, but who are wicked. And you may be thinking to yourself, there are people I know who aren't Christians, but I, I don't think I would call them wicked. They aren't really doing anything that bad. It's not like you live next door to Hitler, right? I mean, sure, maybe your neighbor doesn't mow their lawn and there's always stuff there and their kids are always out running amok and like they borrowed your garden hose six years ago and never really returned it and you keep hinting at it because you've bought a new one since then because you didn't want to be mean about it or anything and like their house is really nasty so it's lowering your property value but you don't want to be that person and talk to them about it. You wouldn't call them wicked. Okay, maybe you would. Maybe you need to have a conversation with your neighbor. But here's the truth whether you think it of someone or not, we're all wicked. We're all wicked. That's the default setting of humanity. That is, that is the factory default that we are all born with. Right? There's only one thing that can change that too, and that's Jesus Christ. See, there's only one thing that, that moved me from wickedness to righteousness, and that's Jesus Christ. It's not somehow that I fixed myself. It doesn't work that way. When your truck is making that noise, it doesn't fix itself, no matter how much you turn the radio up, right? Yeah. Car doesn't have an engine problem, it has a speaker problem. They don't go loud enough. (laughs) What makes us righteous is not our own actions, but the actions of Christ on our behalf. It's that Christ has died and purchased us for himself. It is that Christ has given us his righteousness. You see, what makes you righteous is that you were crucified with Christ. And if you have decided to follow him, then Scripture teaches that you, your old self, your sinful nature that was alive and well, has died on the cross with Jesus. Dead, buried, and gone. And the new you that was dead, your soul within you that was dead under the weight of sin, is now alive and well. Righteousness isn't something that we have earned. It is something that we receive by the grace of God. Righteousness isn't something that we have earned. It is something that we receive by the grace of God. You didn't deserve it. You did not deserve what Christ did on your behalf. Because if you did if you somehow deserved Christ coming down and dying in your place, then he wouldn't have needed to. See, that's the reality of it. We were all undeserving. None of us deserved what Christ did, but he did it out of love. He came, he took on flesh, he lived a perfect life. He, he stepped into our world, stepped into our reality, lived the life that we could never live, and died the death we should have died. The only thing that humanity was ever deserving of is punishment and death. But thankfully, grace is for the undeserving. Amen? 
Grace is for those who don't deserve it. If you could somehow deserve it, then you wouldn't need it. Grace is only for those who don't deserve it. And so God made a way for us to be righteous. God made a new path for us. All of humanity was on one path towards wickedness and death, and God made a new path. We don't deserve to walk it. We've been invited to it. We've been given the opportunity to be called righteous, not because of our own actions, but because of the actions of Christ on our behalf. So what then are we to do? If this is the reality, what are believers to do? What are those who are on that path who would be called righteous, not for their own merit, but because of Christ? What are we to do? Exactly what the psalm tells us to. We are to be like the tree that is planted by the stream. We have to remember that the psalm is written by an author who lived in Israel. If you don't know much about Israel, know this. It's a desert. It is a desert climate. It is the Middle East. And so when you live in the desert, water is essential. Now, this might be strange for you to imagine, having lived in western Pennsylvania, where it rains often, right? But I'm not from western Pennsylvania. I didn't grow up here. I actually grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. And whenever I say that, people are always like, oh my gosh, that's where you grew up? Why'd you move here? It's so beautiful there. The sun's always shining. The sky's always blue. It never rains. Why'd you move? Because the sun's always shining, the sky's always blue, and it never rains. They went a record number of days without rain a while back, like close to a year without precipitation, which you're like, oh, that would be so great. No, it wouldn't, right? I, I checked the weather there the other day. It was like 113. I don't know if you know that, but that's hot here to help. Those of you who are like, it's a dry heat. So is your oven. Go home, turn it on, see how you feel. <laughs> right? It is nasty. It is a desert. It is not nurturing. The only thing that grows there naturally are cactus. Right? That's it. Cactus. You know what I think of when I think of nurturing? Not a cactus. <laughs> it's all prickly and nasty. Everything in the desert wants to kill you. The plants, the animals, the weather, all of it wants you dead, right? Also, the plural of cactus is cacti, not cactuses. <laughs> Just please get that right, right? My wife and I went out to visit recently, went out to Arizona to see some of my family who still like living in the desert. Um, and we went and saw my aunt and uncle who live in the middle of the desert because um, the whole... Arizona, Phoenix area is literally just in the middle of a desert. Um, and, and like you all give directions out here based on landmarks. There aren't landmarks in the desert. Turn left at the cactus. <laughs> Which one? So you have to know street names, otherwise you get lost. And even with knowing street names and GPS, I still got us a little lost. Um, but it's okay, I found the right spot in the desert where they live. And... and we're visiting them in their house, and we go out on the back deck, and their whole backyard is just desert. It's that red gravel desert everywhere. There's cactus in the background, like a mountain 800 miles away in the distance. Um, but there's this little patch of grass that my Uncle John is really proud of, this, this 10 by 15 foot patch of grass. It looks really nice. It is a nice patch of grass in the desert. Um, 
that he works really hard to keep and to maintain. They put in a sprinkler system for this 10 by 15 foot patch of grass that he waters like three times a day to keep going. And some of you are like, he works that hard to have grass? He can have some of mine. (laughs) Give me the address, I'll mail it to him. I'll dig it up one piece at a time. He can have it. I am sick of this, (laughs) right? That is what it is like to live in a desert. That is what it takes to bring life in a desert. This world is a desert. This world is a desert, which means that nothing in this world can sustain you. Nothing in this world can sustain you. There is nothing in this world that can give you life. Right? There's only one stream of life, and that is God himself. There's only one thing that you can connect yourself to and live, and that is God. So what do we need to do then? We need to be rooted in God and in his word. We need to be rooted in God and in his word. You know, I often get asked the question um, when I talk about getting into the word, how? How do I get into the word? How do I start? Uh, I think there are so many people who have such good intentions. They've tried and tried and tried, and, and they, they feel like they've failed. Um, I'm going to tell you this right now. You haven't failed. You have not failed. The only way you've failed is if you've given up. The only way you've failed at reading God's word is if you've completely walked away from it and said, never again. So you haven't failed. And for some practical tips from Pastor Dave on how to actually get into the word, number one, don't try to read the Bible in a year. These won't be on the screen or anywhere, but just don't try to read the Bible in a year. Because here's the thing, you start off really strong, and Genesis and Exodus are really exciting. There's things that happen. And then you get to Leviticus. Not as much happens in Leviticus. It's pretty weighty. And if you somehow make it through Leviticus, you know what's waiting for you? Numbers. Just imagine how exciting a book is that's title is Numbers. (laughs) Right? The whole second chapter of Numbers is literally God explaining to them how to set up camp. Some of you guys are like, we need to read this as a family. We got camping to do. It's not that exciting, trust me. It's like, these people pitched their tent in this direction, and this, I mean, don't try to read through the Bible cover to cover in a year, right? Don't get one of those plans that's like, well, it jumps me around, but eventually I'll read through the Bible in a year, because here's what happens. You're going to miss three days in a row and fall three days behind and suddenly feel like, oh, I'm never going to catch up. Don't start that way. Start this way. Number one, pick a gospel, Pick John, pick Luke and Acts. It's the same author together. Right? Pick something in the New Testament that's going to be encouraging and uplifting to you, something that's not going to be as weighty to begin. Not that the, the Gospels aren't weighty, but start there. Start in the New Testament and connect it to something you're already doing every day. That's probably the biggest key to success I can, I can give you, is connect your Bible reading to something that you are already doing, 
So like my students that, that I talk to and crave, one of the things I encourage them to do is, you know what, you ride the bus in the morning, open up your Bible and read it in the morning. Those of you that have a morning commute, I doubt you do it in silence. Invest in an audio Bible. They're not very expensive. Play it while you're listening to it. Those of you that have a lunch break or that eat lunch, read your Bible with lunch. Do you sit and eat, read the paper at breakfast? Substitute the paper for the Bible. My guess is your day's going to go way better if you're reading the Bible instead of the paper. Um, one is far more uplifting and filled with truth. No offense to whatever newspaper you're reading, but it can't compare to the Word of God. Amen? Okay. Connect it to something that you're already doing, and I, I guarantee you're going to find success. Right? You a coffee drinker? Yeah, you know the sermon's going to be exciting when the pastor has to drink coffee to keep himself awake. <laughs> Have your coffee, read your Bible. Connect it to something you're already doing. And not sleep. Don't connect it to sleep, because you're never going to actually do that one. You're like, well, I sleep every day. I'll read it right before I go to bed. No, you won't. <laughs> Don't connect it to sleep. Connect it to something you're already faithfully doing, and you'll find success in doing it. And why is this important? Why is it important to be connected to God? Why is it important to get into his word? Right? It's the righteous man who is rooted in God and who delights in him. And he is the tree that produces fruit. That is what we want to see. That is why we do this. Right? So what are we to do as the righteous person, as those who are rooted in God, as those who are digging down into his word? We are to be just like that tree that produces fruit, not for the benefit of itself, but for the benefit of others. See, a, a tree doesn't enjoy its own fruits. We get to. See, it's the, the beauty of, of the plant. It produces fruit not for itself, but for others. What happens to fruit that's left hanging on the tree? It rots. It falls to the ground. It shrivels and dies. We are to produce fruit for the benefit of others so that others may be changed by the truth that we have been changed by, so that others may know the truth that we know. See, the wicked of this world offer nothing. There's no nourishment in chaff. There is nothing to, to sustain them. Right? The masses of people who chase after these lies, there's no benefit to them. It is empty. It is nothing. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. <clears throat> For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the conclusion of the matter. This is where the psalm finishes. This is the end of each path. This is where it leads. The author draws us to the conclusion of each person, of each way of going. The wicked will perish. They will not stand in the judgment. They will not join the congregation of the, right, the righteous. When the psalmist talks about knowing that the Lord doesn't know them, this should cause us to think about Matthew 7, Matthew seven twenty one, where Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
It is not that God is somehow unaware of them, and it's not that God does not know that they exist. It is not that God does not understand that they're there. It is that he does not know them. They are not a part of him. They're not united with him, and so they will spend eternity separated from him. Don't think that only those who denounce and rail and cry foul against the name of Jesus are the only wicked in this world. There are many in this world who use the name of Jesus for wickedness. There are many in this world who prophesy and speak in the name of Jesus and tell you to cast down your demons, brother, and tell you that Satan, you got to bind him and get him out of your life, and then things are going to go okay. Then you're going to start to be healed. Then things are going to start to work again. Then you're going to get your job back. Then your dog's going to come back, and you're going to get taller, and your hair's going to go back, and your truck's going to start running again. It's like a bad country song in reverse. There are many who speak out against Satan, but who speak nothing but lies. There are many lies and distractions that are fighting for our attention, that that people are calling us to follow, to believe in, to trust in. All of those things are on the same path, and that path leads only to death. Do this, and you will be happy. Buy this, and you will be satisfied. Join this, and life will make sense. See, the lie of this world is that you can somehow buy satisfaction from the world. The lie of this world is that you can somehow purchase for yourself or gain for yourself satisfaction from this world. But they're selling a lie. You know how I know that? You keep buying things. When they sold you the iPhone 5, this is the greatest phone you'll ever need. Guess what? You bought the 6. And it's not wrong for you to buy things. It's not wrong for you to enjoy nice things. This doesn't mean that you can't have something and have nice things, right? But when you're rooted in Christ, when you're rooted in God and in his word, you understand that none of the pleasures that this world can offer us will ever satisfy, will ever be enough. You know what? That's a freeing thing. Because here's what I understand. This world does not have to satisfy my soul. And so I can appreciate it and enjoy it for what it is. It is God's blessing in my life. And when it's not there, I'm not somehow lacking something. Because I still have Christ. I still have my center. I still have that stream of life that I'm rooted in. All the other stuff is just icing on the cake. Life cannot make sense apart from Christ. And church, again, two paths. Wickedness, righteousness. One leads to truth and life. One leads to death. One leads to joy and satisfaction. One leads to emptiness. My hope is that you're walking that path. My hope is that every day you're digging down deep into God and into his word, that you're rooting yourself more and more in his truth. And if you are, if you realize what you've been given in Christ, if you understand the life you have within you, then my hope is you understand the opportunity and responsibility you have every day to share with the people around you. Like a tree that's planted by the stream in the desert, my hope is that you're using your life, using what God has blessed you with for the benefit of others. And I'm not just talking about money or material things. Right? Although you can use those, right? the resources you have, the things you've been given, the thing that you have been blessed with more than anything else is the gospel. 
is the good news, is the truth that Jesus died. Do you realize that, church? You have the gospel, the only good news. You have the only truth of life. Does that not excite you? Man, if you can't get excited about people coming to know Jesus, if you can't get excited about dead people coming to life, if you can't get excited about wicked people becoming righteous, about people turning from the path to death to the path to life, then maybe you're on the wrong path or maybe you're asleep. You have the only truth that leads to life, the only good news of Jesus, that Christ took our punishment, stood in our place, bore the wrath of God so that we could have life. What are you doing with that? Who are you sharing that with? Who are you talking to about the gospel? If the answer is no one, it's time to have a conversation. If the answer is there's really no one I'm talking to about Jesus, why? Invite someone to your house. Invite them to my house. I don't care. I'll talk to them about Jesus. Hey, you should go visit Pastor Dave. Done. I'll give you my address afterwards. It's the bluish house. Right? Have them out to coffee. Talk to them. <clears throat> I think of it like this. My metaphor. Right? People in this world who don't know Christ, who need to know him, are like people who are drowning. Right? So if I'm drowning, if we're out on the water, I'm drowning and I need to be saved, right? I need a life jacket. I need someone to throw me a life jacket. Now, you could throw me something else. You could throw me a bowling ball or a soup spoon, but they're really not going to help like a life jacket's going to help, right? It doesn't matter how much you believe that bowling ball is going to help me. If I'm drowning and you throw me a bowling ball, hey, believe in this, okay, Right? Till the bubbles stop. If you throw me a soup spoon, I'm trying to doggy paddle with a soup spoon, it's not going to do me any good. You need to throw me a life jacket. Right? It doesn't matter how much you believe something will save me. It doesn't matter how much I believe something will save me. Only a life jacket's going to save me. Right? The only thing that can move someone from death to life is Jesus. We got people who believe real strongly in things that aren't Jesus who walk our neighborhoods and tell people about them. What are you doing? Here's the thing people will only call on Jesus to save them if they understand that one, they need to be saved, and two, only Jesus can save them. And the only way they know that is if we tell it to them, if, if we explain, is if we speak up. They need to be taught, they need to be told, they need to understand. Belief cannot exist without knowledge of who Jesus is. People need to be taught about Jesus. They need to hear it, which means we need to say it. That's why being around people isn't just enough. That's why just being nice to your neighbor isn't enough. Or smiling at the lady at Walmart later isn't enough. We need to speak We need to invite. So back to our drowning metaphor. It doesn't matter how well you know how to use a life jacket if you never actually throw one. It doesn't matter how well you know how to save people if you never actually go out on the water. If all you ever do is stand around on land with your other lifeguards talking about all the different techniques you know for saving people and all the different kind of life jackets you got and all the different kind of ways you know how to throw them, and I say, well, who are you throwing it to? Well, no one. I don't go out on the water. 
what good are you doing? The best life jacket is the one that's thrown. The best gospel is the one that is preached. The best way to evangelize someone is the way you're actually going to do it. The only way to fail at this church, the only way to fail at sharing the gospel is to not do it. The only way you can fail at telling someone about Jesus is to not tell them about Jesus. Now, you could choose to believe that people don't really drown. You could say to yourself, well, God wouldn't actually let someone drown. But all that does is remove your responsibility to tell them about God, to tell them about Jesus. Uh, Last summer, we did a series in craze called Famous Last Words, and I had the chance to give my famous last words, and they were this. We are not responsible for how people respond to the gospel, but we are responsible to give them something to respond to. You are not responsible for how the people in your life respond to the gospel, but you are responsible to give them something to respond to, to give them the gospel. The only way you fail is to not do it. The only way you fail is to not actually speak the truth. There are not many paths to God. There's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. There are not many ways to righteousness. There's only one, and that is Jesus Christ. There's only one path that leads to life. There's only one path that leads to God. There's only one path that leads to truth. Are you going to walk the path of righteousness or are you going to walk the path of wickedness? That is the truth that is before every person in this room, in this town, in this county, in this country, in this world. There's only two paths. Which one are you going to walk? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.